These days, so many podcast hosts just riff through unprepared segments until they get to the next ad break for pills they know nothing about, cheap razors, and whatever else they can get a buck from. But the Higher Side Chats does it differently. We succeed or fail on the quality of the content and your desire to hear more of it. So you're about to hear another free first hour episode that's here to prove the two hour shows are worth subscribing for. Five shows a month for just $8. Members get a mobile friendly website, a decade of archives, a dedicated RSS feed for the best podcast apps, and a lot deeper discussion than a single hour can allow for. Sponsor free with more for thee. Get a free seven-day trial of THC Plus at thehiresidechats.com. Enjoy! In the 1930s, President Franklin Delano Roosevelt addressed the nation through a series of radio broadcasts known as the Fireside Chats. His aim was to reassure the common man that our society would recover from its troubled times. Well, we're far from 1930, and I deal with a different kind of fire. For a new era of worldly frustration, we offer a fresh conversation. I'm Greg Carlwood, and these are the Higher Side Chats. Yes, Higher Side Chatters, coming in hot from sunny San Diego, I'm Greg Carlwood. And it boggles the mind that so few people really consider just how much more abundance, efficiency, and prosperity we could have in an optimized society when we can all easily acknowledge that industry is motivated by bringing the most profitable products and systems to market, not those that are the most useful to society or ideal for the consumer. Food, medicine, energy, and more. Like a good drug dealer, their products and systems are designed to get you on the never-ending comeback. Whether by metered, bottomless bills for energy or planned obsolescence throughout the market from computer printers to light bulbs and batteries. The profit motive encourages things to be made to break, made cheaper and more fragile, and for even food to be engineered much closer to pleasure center capturing cardboard than anything of real quality. So why is it so controversial to suggest that better products, systems, and energy processes exist just outside of the cold capitalist controlled culture? and the monopolies of the interlocking multinational corporate cabal. Shouldn't that just be a given? And when you research the alternative realm and the bright minds of suppressed sciences, you certainly come away disappointed with just how backwards things really are. Well, instrumental to opening my eyes for years has been the great Aaron Murakami of eMediaPress.com, who has been highlighting the best and brightest for a long time now. His website contains a few products, many presentations, and tons of educational material from those outside-the-system scientists, engineers, and inventors that all deserve much more recognition than they tend to get. But his yearly Energy Science and Technology Conference is certainly starting to change that. And here with Aaron today is Jeremiah Furwerda, one of those bright minds that Aaron has been working with and one of the most exciting presenters of the ESTC conference in recent years. Jeremiah has done more to take the Tesla turbine further than anyone since probably Tesla himself. He's the founder of My Tesla Power and attended Embry-Riddle Aeronautical University where he studied mechanical engineering. He left after two years because he didn't agree with the professors who insisted that Nikola Tesla wasn't as smart as he is said to be, that many of his theories were wrong, and that they went against the well-established laws of thermodynamics. 
Aaron believes in Jeremiah's work so much that he's letting Jeremiah move his operation into his shop in an effort to help catapult everything he's doing further and faster than he could do on his own. And I'm psyched to have them both here to talk about what's possible with the Tesla turbine and more. The secret science studiers, outside the box advocates, and Tesla tech teachers, Aaron and Jeremiah, welcome to the higher side. Hey, thanks for having us, Greg. Thank you. Great introduction. <laughs> Thank you, man. I try. And so I always like to remind the audience of where we are on some of the various threads I like to follow because sometimes huge chunks of time pass and they can't be expected to remember everything. But Aaron, you and I have kept in touch for quite a few years now. You brought us Eric Dollard originally in 2015 and again in 2019. And you and I did an Ether Physics 101 interview in 2018. And you also helped set up the interview I did in 2019 with Ernst Wilhelm Vandenberg, who wrote The Science of Tesla's Magic. And you've been kind enough to really set me up well for a conference visit, but with the pregnant wife and now baby, I just haven't been able to take you up on it. But I think 2023 is going to be the year I come out if the offer stands. But before we dive into Jeremiah's work, can you give us a little update on Eric, I know the people have been really fascinated with him in those interviews that we've done. How has his work progressed since 2019? Sure. So Eric is doing pretty well. He's at his lab in West Central Nevada, and he was unfortunately not able to come up to the conference this year. But back in January, myself and a few associates went down there and helped to move things forward with organization and getting the shop cleaned up and one of the projects we're able to get going is one of Eric's big interests is the telluric Tesla type of transmission, basically ground transmission where you're sending information and communications through the earth using the earth as one wire, which is uh, essentially what Tesla was doing with electricity with the uh, so-called Colorado Springs type of magnifying transmitter. And so there's an old navy style transmitter that's hooked up right now it was with the team of people that we had it was successfully connected to an old abandoned gas lighting system pipe network as the grounding rod that goes through the town and did a couple tests where a couple people drove out a couple miles away and they were still able to pick up these transmissions that were transmitted straight into the ground rather than out into the airwaves. So that was a success. And more recently, somebody that we work with, Haka says, who is one of the presenters at the conference and has been working with us for a while, he recently dug out some parts out of a storage locker to help Eric move forward with building a 1,500-watt RF amplifier so that we can take the power output of that telluric transmitter up to about 1500 watts and potentially might be able to transmit through the ground maybe one two thousand miles dang <laughs> i love it and jeremiah i appreciate you being here as well aaron told me a lot about your work and when it comes to tesla people tend to know a lot more about his ac motor or the tesla tower but they don't really know much about the turbine, which is funny because as I've recently learned, Tesla said this was his favorite invention, right? Yep. He said it was his favorite invention and he worked on it a lot longer than people think or people know about. Hmm. Right on. Why do you think that is that he thought it was his favorite out of all the things he worked on? 
I think one of the biggest problems with technologies is conversion of thermal energy. And his turbine is basically what I think is the best turbine in the world for transforming a temperature differential into energy. So there's all these heat sources that we have on the planet, including your wood stove, and we still don't have a simple device to convert that heat into energy. For instance, everybody who has like a wood stove at home right now could have a simple turbine. And just as a side effect of running their wood stove, they could have enough electricity to power their house in the wintertime when there's no sun for solar systems. That's just one example of many examples. It also can run on any fuel or any heat source or anything that burns, you can run the turbine on. So where normally you would have a generator in the wintertime to make up for when there's no sun, with the generator you have to have one specific fuel and that goes with one specific type of way to convert that into energy, which is a regular generator with thousands of different parts that can all wear out and it's not very reliable and it's not very efficient. Right on, because you mentioned the temperature differential is the main factor here. So for people to visualize this, you could have a chamber and you could burn anything, wood, gasoline, diesel, jet fuel, weeds. Even garbage. Yeah, it's garbage, uh, sawdust, propane, natural gas. It doesn't matter what you burn because the burning creates the heat and then the heat goes into the turbine and it outputs energy, which can be obviously converted to electricity. And that's why it's such a magical thing is because we aren't stuck in, in a monopoly where one person controls the fuel source we're allowed to use. You could really burn anything, you're saying. Absolutely. And there's also one more interesting thing is if you have a farm and a big compost pile, a lot of times you have a lot of heat building up in that compost pile. You could also use the heat from that to run your system too. Sometimes compost piles will get so hot they'll actually start on fire. And that's another interesting heat source you could use. Yeah, yeah. And you've also mentioned geothermal heat. So you could bury the chamber far enough down to capture the internal heat of the earth and not burn anything that would need replenishing. And obviously solar can be used as well. So really it sounds highly adaptable to all kinds of stuff mm -hmm. or all kinds of inputs, I should say. <laughs> yeah. And when it comes to the output of this turbine, I've watched a lot of your YouTube videos, which kind of document your process of learning and refining the system. And you have one video where you mention a three inch turbine that is putting out an estimated 1750 watts. And so for me, I'm like, well, what does that even mean? I looked up that the running wattage on most household refrigerators is usually between 350 to 750 watts. Let's call it 500. So just this smaller turbine that you've made in the past would be able to run like three or four refrigerators if that helps people to do the math. And these turbines, they have these discs in them. They look kind of like records. So when I say three inch, that's like a small three inch disc. And then I think now you're working on a six inch. Can you talk to us about that a little bit, about the, the process and the progression of the different models you've worked with and 
what you think the final specs will be for maximum efficiency and what that can produce. So the three-inch turbine was basically to produce cheaper turbines for research and development, which it did really well. It did really well to prove the concept. And I also learned a lot about the physics of Tesla turbine, but I needed it more powerful and more efficient for the actual production turbine. So I tested the concept, showed the power output, and I finally understand enough to where I'm confident that we can give somebody a good quality working turbine for, I mean, we're going to make the price as cheap as we can, but it's going to be, the main thing about the turbine is it's going to be long lasting and it's going to be very reliable and very efficient. I love it. That's exciting news. And in the research I was doing leading up to this, trying to learn a bit more about the turbine and the history of Tesla's turbine, the criticism I hear of the machine itself is that these disks have to spin really fast, a lot of RPMs, and the heat also is a factor. The conventional system says that these disks warp and they break down. What would you say to that? Well, there's a video on YouTube that actually I know exactly. It's the main, if you type it in on Google, it's the first video that pops up. <laughs> and I know exactly what video you're talking about, where it talks about the speed being impractical because the speed of the rotor would have to go 60,000 RPMs. And for a three foot rotor, which you actually don't need, with a three foot rotor, 60,000 RPMs is Im impossible to achieve because the centrifugal forces pulling on the discs are too great for any material to hold itself together under those forces. So they were first talking about a six inch turbine having to spin 60,000 RPMs. And then they said, well, if you want it for industry, if you want to run a turbine, their diameter is usually about three foot. So for a three foot rotor to spin 60,000 RPMs to achieve the same high enough speed, it would be impossible. So it's really funny because there's a very basic flaw in their math. And the important part of the speed of a turbine is the size of the diameter. Larger size diameters don't need to go as fast in order to achieve the same periphery speed per RPM. So in order for a six inch turbine to go fast enough, it needs to go 60,000 RPMs according to them a three-foot turbine wouldn't need to go anywhere near that RPM because the speed of the periphery per RPM is so much greater in the three-foot turbine, it would only end up needing to run about 6,500 RPM to achieve the same speed as the six-inch turbine. So they're comparing two things that don't actually correlate the way they think it does. I don't know if this is done on purpose, but the video got over 10 million views so far, and it seems like a smear campaign for the Tesla turbine. Interesting, interesting. So another thing, sorry, I, I want to mention is you don't actually need a six inch turbine to go 60,000 RPM. That kind of seems like a random guess that they made as well. It is advantageous to run the turbine at higher velocities because you can get more power with less torque. But Nikola Tesla didn't have any issues whatsoever with his turbines and getting over 200 horsepower out 
without any problems. The reason it's famous for his discs to warp is because he was just running the turbine to see its maximum speed, basically. There's no need to go too fast to where the turbine starts to warp the discs. And it makes sense to me, too, because during my research and development, there's probably 50 different times where I wanted to test the maximum speed of my rotor, and I had all kinds of things happening that I knew would happen, like rotors stretching and breaking, and, you know, it's just part of research and development. So it's no wonder he had his discs warp a couple times. Mm-hmm. That helps uh, people understand this a lot, I think. And when it comes to the principles that make this work, that same video you're probably referencing that I, I brought up talks about the viscous effect of fluids on solid surfaces. And so when stuff starts to get over my head, especially in this alternative realm, what I like, what like excites me and brings me back to it is a lot of these guys are observing things in nature and then developing systems and technologies that are based on what our system shows us. I think that's kind of exciting. And nature seems to have a lot of really complex and advanced processes that look simple and instead our mainstream system just wants to blow everything up, rip everything apart and kind of developed a, a physics and an energy system that kind of goes against nature in some ways. But this video mentions that Tesla might have even watched this happen and gotten the idea from looking into a stream. And when you see uh, the viscous effects of fluid on a solid, meaning water in a stream moving over stones, there is a little bit of a, an effect there. There's some principles at work that I guess seem interesting to people who are smarter than me. But I've also heard this described as a tornado or a hurricane in a box. The more heat and moisture you pump into a hurricane, the stronger it gets. Category two, three, four. Talk to us about the principles that make this work that aren't really recognized in the mainstream and how this relates to things we see in nature. Yeah, and so the tornado in the box, if you can imagine, well, there's two different types of turbine. Well, there's many different types of turbines, but Tesla's uses viscosity, so your gas isn't actually colliding with any surfaces. It just drags alongside it. And then a regular turbine will have a surface that the particles of gas smash into. And so you have a chaotic tornado that's got turbulence all over the place. It's kind of like with aerodynamics and a car, the more aerodynamic your car is, the less chaos and the less turbulence in the car. So the the easier it is for you to travel because there's less chaos. But it's a laminar flow condition. With an ideal turbine, you have a laminar flow condition. And the Tesla turbine is basically the only thing that has that laminar flow. So if you think of two turbines, one where there's a bunch of chaos and one where everything's working together in the same direction, that would be more a more natural energy conversion for a turbine. Nice. Well, it seems like you know your stuff, man, far more than I can argue with. But Aaron, let's bring you back in here. You've been doing this conference for several years running, highlighting all sorts of outside-the-box engineers and inventors working on a wide variety of devices and systems. The Tesla turbine, the Bork engine, Adams motor, Bendini's Ferris wheel. 
Talk to us about what it is regarding Jeremiah's work on this turbine that gets you so jazzed up that he's the one we got here today, that he's the one coming to work in your shop. It just seems like you've got plenty of options, but this seems to be the thing that you're elevating as maybe closest to production ready, or at least very important, even in this alternative space. Yeah, it seems to be one of the low-hanging fruits as far as a system goes that can actually produce electricity in practical amounts. It's basically mechanical, it's EMP-proof, there's no complicated electronics, and there's plumbing. So it's really very simple. One thing Jeremiah didn't mention that I'd like to say just to show how fast and rapid the progress for this is happening with all the work Jeremiah is doing is that last year at the conference, it took a whole trailer to carry the hot water tank and the rest of the setup and the cold tank to create this thermal differential was submerged in ice. And it worked, it proved the point and it produced a certain amount of electricity. This year, the hot tank was, everything sat on a tabletop and it outperformed what happened last year. The hot water tank was around 175 degrees and the cold tank was at 85 degrees, a much lower thermal differential, yet it was able to produce a lot more electricity. So going from something that took a trailer to carry it to having something on a tabletop at a conference demonstration that outperforms that big system, that's pretty rapid progress. That's a so-called quantum leap in the uh, efficiency of the whole system Jeremiah has been able to put together. What I like about it is that if, for example, there happens to be something that breaks down, well, if it's something electronic, that has some type of control board or whatever, if one little component goes bad, most people are not gonna be in a position to be able to work on it. But with the Tesla turbine, for example, if something was to go wrong, anybody with some basic mechanical aptitude could maybe pull it apart, replace the bearings, put it back together and get it working again. So it's simple, 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 and it's highly effective. And there are a couple electrical type of systems that produce electricity that I think are very promising. But for the reasons stated, those are the reasons why I'm so interested in seeing Jeremiah's work move forward. Right on. Yes, I think that's great. And it is fascinating. I wish we had the visual representation sometimes on this show, but it is what it is. And one of the criticisms about this is that it doesn't produce enough to be really practical. It's kind of like the critics would say, well, we all see people in, in high school science fairs screw a light bulb into a potato, but we're not all powering our houses with potatoes just because there's some energy there. And so I looked up, you know, the average American household's consumption, and it says that the average American household consumes about 11,000 kilowatts per year. Let's just call it a thousand a month, you know, break it down to 800 or a thousand a month. When you bring this to market and you refine it, um, as much as you plan to, how much energy production do you suspect you can reach? Can you get to that 800 to 1,000 kilowatts a month? Or, I mean, I don't know how, how it, as long as you're burning something, could it power a home? Yeah. So, with that one demo you mentioned, the 1,750 watts, the average home, I think, actually draws about a kilowatt per hour, 24 hours a day. So basically, if you had a thousand watts of light bulbs burning 24 hours a day, that represents really about what the average household is. Okay. And 
You know, so if you had some solar tube collectors, for example, which can be in the 90% efficient range, and that was heating up a tank of water, the heat in that water tank was sized so that it's greater than what the Tesla turbine system can deplete over a handful of days, then you constantly have this buffer where it'll be spinning 24-7, producing electricity 24-7, powered freely from the sun. And that's kind of a simple system that I see. And I think Jeremiah might have some comments on that. I just wanted to mention that you don't necessarily need water to store your heat in water. There's a simple adjustment I'm going to do where we can store the heat energy in dirt. And a big problem with solar systems is storing the energy. One, you can't store the energy fast enough sometimes, like in the wintertime when the sun's only out for two hours. Even if you have a massive amount of solar panels, your batteries can't absorb the energy fast enough. But the good thing about having solar heat collectors is, one, they put out way more power. Solar panels are typically are only like 15 to 20% efficient. And the solar heat tubes can be up to 90% efficient, I believe. It depends on the solar heat tubes. But you can get a lot more energy with less panels, but you can also store that energy at any speed. The mass doesn't care how fast you want to put the energy in there. So if your sun, the sun's only out for a couple hours in the wintertime and you have a big solar heat tube array, you can just store all that energy like it's a capacitor because capacitors can absorb a ton of energy instantly, but you can also store way more energy for a cheaper price because your mass is basically free. Say you use sand or dirt, you know, the batteries are dirt cheap and they're you know eco-friendly and they're going to last forever. Another problem with solar systems is the batteries need to be replaced every you know two to eight years, depending on the battery, and they only really last about eight years if they are maintained perfectly. A lot of people, they don't know how to properly maintain their batteries. So realistically, unless you're a solar technician, you could end up just destroying your batteries in a year or less. So it's like a fail-proof system for your batteries. You can store a lot more energy a lot faster. And then when you can't store, if you don't have enough solar in the wintertime, you can use all the fuels that you could possibly think of, whatever you've got, to make up for when the sun's not there and you don't have enough energy stored. Right. Very interesting. That's another thing that I think a lot of people would be surprised by. You're not using batteries. You're storing the energy in mass. This comes from the description of Jeremiah's latest presentation, but it kind of fits in here with what you're saying. It says another benefit from the Tesla turbine is 96% efficient solar. It's about time the world used solar heat collection for electrical energy on a mass scale. Today's electrical solar panels are only 15 to 19% efficient. With all this extra power from the sun, there's only one problem. How do you store all that energy? The answer is water. Water can store enormous amounts of energy in the form of heat, and it's clean, cheap, and available to everyone. And I guess you're saying the next advancement is you can just store this in dirt or other, you know, natural materials. I think concrete was also mentioned in one of your slides, but that's very exciting. Obviously, dirt, water and concrete aren't going to break down 
like batteries. They're not going to end up in the landfill like batteries. And that's just an interesting thing. <laughs> I think it might surprise people. You also don't need to mine precious metals and have super advanced factories to build the batteries. They say that it takes more coal, more emissions to mine the precious metals that the batteries are made of than you actually save by using the batteries in the first place. Hmm. Damn. And Aaron, I wanted to see if you could add a bit here about solar batteries. You have an ebook on the site called Solar Secrets Debunking the Myths of the Solar Industry by Peter Lindemann. And some of its contents include the biggest myth about solar panel efficiency, the one type of solar panel the industry doesn't want you to know about, the key to rebuilding the battery to like new conditions on every single charge, and getting more to your batteries from your panels than has ever been thought possible. Can you talk to us a bit about this? Seems like we have a planned obsolescence battery cartel in action, and this might be totally different mechanisms, but there's apparently a lot of secrets the industry doesn't want you to know. Sure, they want to sell batteries. They don't want you to have a battery that lasts too long because they're all about the recurring income, which I don't necessarily blame them if they want a sustainable business model. But batteries are really kind of a perfect water fuel cell. It's either making or breaking a water molecule, depending on if you are pulling electricity from it or putting electricity back into the battery. So Free Solar Secrets is available on eMediaPress.com. It's been a free download for quite a few years now. And in the past, when John Bedini was still alive, he was manufacturing battery chargers and solar charge controllers that could give a theoretical infinite lifespan to lead-acid batteries. Because with all the research and development that was done through his shop in the, well, actually going back to the 70s, but more for commercial applications in the early 2000s when Peter Lindemann worked with him, all these developments really came about to show how a lead-acid battery likes to be charged, and the solar charge controllers and battery chargers slash rejuvenators that were manufactured by John Bedini's company were the only ones in the world that actually charged a lead-acid battery the way it likes to be charged. So one of the secrets in that book, and that book is going to remain a free download for a short period of time at the conference last month, which is our 11th annual Energy Science Technology Conference, Peter Lindemann gave a presentation on advanced solar methods where we're showing a successful system implementing the concepts that we have been teaching for years. And it's a, a friend of ours, Al Francor, up in Yak, BC, and his batteries are all charged by 2 p.m. in the afternoon, regardless of how much sun there is. And so with the batteries, what's been known for about a century, and this came out of a book that John Bedini and Peter and the rest of us called the Battery Bible. It was written by somebody who was teaching farmers how to keep their batteries pretty much indefinitely good for powering milking machines on the farm, for example. And what they see is that as the battery is getting charged, you know, for example, an alternator in the car might push your battery to 13.8. Some solar charge controllers and battery chargers might charge the battery to the low 14s, and people are conditioned to believe that when you're done charging it and you see the voltage come down, if it's 12.6 and above, then it must be charged. But nothing could be further from the truth because the voltage is not an indication of how much capacity that battery actually has. 
And so what we see is that once you start charging the voltage, you start bringing the voltage up to the high 13s, you start getting up into the mid to high 14s, the voltage level starts to kind of plateau a little bit. And if you push it to 15, 15, 1, 15.2, 15.3, right around there, it'll plateau. And then what you see is that the voltage actually drops a little bit. And when you see that voltage drop, that means that the final layers of sulfation have dissolved back into the electrolyte. And you basically reverse the chemistry to a like new status. What that voltage drop indicates is that the impedance, which is like a resistance in the battery, has dropped because if you still have sulfation on the plate, that means there's less electrolyte in the solution and you have more distilled water than you do the sodium or the uh, sulfuric acid solution. The more sulfuric acid is dissolved in the solution, the more conductive it is, which means there's less resistance to the current moving through the battery. But when that sulfation goes onto the lead, and that means the battery is sulfated, so to speak, there's less sulfuric acid in the solution, which means it makes it harder for the current to move through the battery. So when we see that little voltage drop in the low 15 volt range for a flooded cell lead acid battery, which would be like a battery in your car that you actually have little caps you can take off and add distilled water to it, that kind of battery at that low 15 volt level you will see that little voltage drop, which means the final layers of sulfation dissolve back into the solution, making it more conductive. So that's why the voltage drops. Not only does the current move through more easily, but the voltage is moving through the battery more easy as well. So it's like there's less back pressure to it. You know, if you put a potato in a tailpipe of a running engine, it'll stall it out because there's so much back pressure that the engine can't turn over because there's too much back pressure holding it back but the pressure will go up quite a bit and then it'll just stall out and that's kind of what the sulfation is in a battery is kind of like putting a potato in a tailpipe where you have too much back pressure to the flow of electricity so the pressure goes up and the voltage is up but if you remove that potato that pressure would suddenly drop and that's what that little voltage drop is so all of Bedini's battery chargers and rejuvenators took the lead acid batteries through that process to bring it up, look for that little drop, and then you can reuse the battery. And as long as the battery was constantly charged by that method, it would just stay good. I mean, he had car starter batteries that were over 20 years old that still worked like new. <laughs> you know, people have these car batteries, they might be replacing them every several years. Well, it's no wonder because the alternator is going to push it to about maybe 13.8 volts or something like that. And it's going to appear that the battery is charged, but there's a lot of sulfation still on there. You know, and you look at the batteries in general, it's like, well, what's the difference between a 36-month battery or a 48-month battery? Well, the main difference is that the 48-month battery has more space at the bottom of the uh, battery for junk to fall off the plates until it settles enough junk in the bottom of the battery to short the cells out. Huh. You know, so when, when we look at it like that, it's like, you know, do people really understand that difference is even there, that it's just more space for more junk to fall off before it shorts out the cell? And the answer is no. They just replace it. Okay, it's 48 months, been about four years, five years. It's not holding a charge anymore. Let's replace it. So, for example, if you had, you know, maybe once a month, once every other month, you charge that lead acid battery, your starter battery in your car up to that level once every month, every other month or so, that battery will just keep lasting and lasting and lasting. And having it last, you know, 10 years is not a problem. We've seen that over and over and over. 
So charging the battery to the right voltage, that's one of the most important things for people to understand. And that's explained in Free Solar Secrets. But Peter has also given the two most definitive presentations on lead acid batteries and how they need to be charged and rejuvenated. And those are also on emediapress.com. It's called Battery Secrets. And the other one is Battery Rejuvenation. And between those two presentations, people will know more about lead acid batteries than pretty much all the other websites on the internet combined. <laughs> and, you know, we have the results to basically prove that what we were saying about batteries is true. And we were able to take like a 80% of the discarded batteries at the scrapyard, about 80% that nobody else could charge, bring back or anything else. And we could bring them back to 80% to 110% of the manufacturer's rating. We could literally take some batteries that were doomed for the dump and bring them back to being a little bit better than the brand new off the shelf. Yeah, that's amazing. I had that written down from Peter that 80% could be brought back. And that's amazing because there's obviously so much waste in our system that just ends up out there and it's toxic and they try to burn it all in the landfills and it's just a nightmare situation. And let me ask you this, because we're talking a little bit about renewable energies and solar, and obviously we have this push for wind and solar, and sometimes people can get triggered by this. And look, when people talk about climate change and this new Green Deal stuff, you know, obviously they are pushing for these other energy systems. And the concern is that our electrical grid as it stands can barely meet our needs as it is. We have blackouts and brownouts and outages all over this country. If we add a few million, say, electric cars, well, what's that going to do? Most of the electricity comes from coal anyway, I understand. But we should all be able to acknowledge, agendas aside, that we want a cleaner world. It just seems like a no-brainer, obviously. But the string pullers seem like they're trying to use that desire to steer us into systems that don't expose this alternative paradigm, as well as offer them more control and us less freedom. Is that fair to say? Do you guys have any thoughts on the conventional push to green energy systems versus what you guys are doing? Because it seems like if they really wanted a cleaner world, if they really wanted to go to new systems, they should be talking to you. It seems like even with the or the systems that we have today to get us on green energy aren't good enough to actually do it. And I think they know that, too. The only thing it's really doing for us right now is giving them an excuse to charge us more for the oil. So they're actually not getting any closer to having green energy. We're just paying more for the oil. <laughs> I agree. Aaron, do you have any thoughts on that? I'm, I know it's going to come up in the comments around here. Yeah, no, I, I, I agree with Jeremiah. How's everybody going to transition to you know electric cars, for example, when first of all, there's not enough lithium? That's an environmental catastrophe on its own. And, you know, if half the country is powered by coal, well, that means half the electric cars are essentially coal powered. And so, you know, where are the real solutions? You know, I think they ought to be looking at the internal combustion engine because there's a lot of enhancements that a lot of these automobile manufacturers have patents on all kinds of things that could, you know, crank up the thermal efficiency of all the engines already. So, if, for example, you're able to increase mileage by maybe 30%, 50%, that seems to be, you know, more of a low-hanging fruit. Why don't they go that route? 
you know, I don't know what the whole agenda is behind the scenes with the oil industry and the lithium mining and all that, but none of the solutions they're presenting are actually solutions. They really are causing more problems. I mean, if you look at all the big windmill farms, none of those things are even recyclable. They have big burial mounds full of these damaged and discarded blades because they can't even recycle them. So that whole wind industry can't even survive without the money coming from the <laughs> taxpayer money from the government. So it looks kind of like an effort and futility. You know, there's all this stuff with this, you know, solar stuff several years back that looks like, I don't know, it just looks like one scam right after another. I mean, but the other thing is, is even with solar, you know, look at the kind of documents that have come forward over the years about, you know, different national security acts and dealing with patents and stuff like that. And it's already like thousands of patents have been covered up for one reason or another. And there was one document we came across and it's posted in one of my websites, energeticforum.com, was that solar panels were not really supposed to have any efficiency over 20%. And if it was, it was deemed worthy of basically being suppressed under those patent security acts. So literally, it's almost like it's illegal to have a solar panel over 20% efficient. So I, I don't know, you know, what I look at is, like you're saying, we all want to breathe clean air, we want to have a clean world. And whether or not somebody believes in the climate change or what's going on, if we're just working on technologies that eliminate pollution and that kind of thing, you know, we should all be on the same team. Mm -hmm. You know, it's kind of hard to figure out what's going on, but all I know is I just do my best to surround myself with people who uh, I admire, I trust, I know that they're working on things that actually work. And that's where I kind of put my focus. Years ago, I'd look into a lot of the conspiracy stuff and research one website to another to kind of see what's going on. But it's been kind of a, a while since I've done that. And so I just kind of go with the flow with, you know, who I work with and see how kind of things kind of manifest on their own. And I think we're doing a pretty good job. But the conference has made a big difference for a lot of people because they're able to see a lot of demos that actually work. A lot of these things work contrary to what conventional physics says is possible. We've demonstrated it over and over over the years. You know, this past July was our 11th annual conference. And we've shown probably 10 or 11 systems that produce more net work on the output than what it takes to run them. And I think that's what everybody really needs to start looking at. And it doesn't mean more is going out than going in. It's more is going out than what we put in, which means the extra input is obviously coming from free environmental input, whether it's heat, sunshine, or whatever else. You know, those are all legitimate free energy systems. And I think that. A lot of people in the so-called green energy world and people who are concerned about climate, you know, whatever the reality to all that is, should start looking at open systems because those are the principles that empower everybody's mindset to see that there really is an abundance of potential all over the place. It's dripping off the walls. And there's a lot of systems that could be implemented and designed that actually takes that into account. So. I think we're moving in the right direction. There's a lot of scary stuff going on. I don't know how it's all going to play out, but I just keep my nose to the grindstone and, and keep moving forward. Yeah, yeah. And I like that approach, especially at this point, having done this so long myself. It's best to just focus on the solutions and not get too obsessed over the agendas because then you give them all your power, all your 
thought energy and goes to like, oh my God, what are they trying to do to us? Instead of just being like, well, what do we want to do? And so I think you're right on the money. And I've heard you talk about open system thermodynamics, that everybody should be required to understand that to graduate high school. And people in the energy industry, they either don't want to look at that or they don't understand it. And it really is how systems in nature work. But let me ask you this, because obviously we do have the issues with the patent system that you mentioned. It seems like there's people who monitor the patent system and look for certain people trying to patent systems that are off limits. Maybe people come through and they purchase these technologies or they and bury them rather than develop them, or they hire these inventors and bring them into black projects. Sometimes they even die mysteriously. These are all things that we've seen. But critics say that the suppression angle is overblown. I know people who have histories in the tech space, working with venture capital and angel investors and securing funding. And those people really struggle to understand how this stuff can work, but products can't be brought to market, especially today with the interconnectedness of the internet. We might have a blockage established in academia. The stuff might not be in textbooks, but why have we gone so long without anything truly breaking through you said you have 10 or 11 systems people can see on display. You know, people can see the presentations at these conferences. Well, where can we buy this stuff? Why Why are we still not there yet, do you think? So for me, my introduction to the first person who actually had something that demonstrated those principles was John Bedini. And he always kept things at kind of a small proof of concept level. He never really tried to put them into production or anything, and he wanted to keep things small. You know, he was threatened back in the uh, 80s after he was involved with some people, and this one machine called the Watson machine was shown at one of the Tesla symposiums, and it produced more work than what you have to pay for on the input. Well, I think the proof of concept thing has gone, you know, so far, the little Bedini SG, for example, is probably the most replicated system that demonstrates these principles in the world. People will not really start to see the true so-called free energy gains unless they scale it up, start going up in voltage and that kind of thing. But I think it's almost kind of changing right now in front of my eyes where some of the people who have some of these systems are moving in the direction of making these commercially available, whether it's going to be kits or whatever. The suppression thing, I don't think that that's gone too far in terms of the skeptics or critics of looking at all this, because, you know, without naming the name, one of the largest automobile manufacturers in the world, an American company, they're the largest owner of third-party patents than any company in the world, sitting on hundreds, if not thousands of patents that they just buy out. I mean, if you look at, for example, I have a plasma ignition system that I invented that, so I didn't invent that type of plasma. This ignition system I'm mentioning can instantly dissociate hydrogen from water. It detonates that hydrogen, then that hydrogen in turn burns more of the fuel air mixture in an internal combustion engine. So you can actually greatly lean an engine out while simultaneously getting a temperature drop, which is showing that my ignition system greatly increases the thermal efficiency of an engine. So I just invented the most simple and practical way to do it. 
every automobile manufacturer that I've come across and some of the spark plug companies, some of the universities and governmental agencies, so like NASA, JPL, and the rest of them, they all have patents on the antiquated way of making that plasma ignition system since the 70s, possibly as far back as the 60s. Not a single one of them has ever put it into production. I understand that it requires a more sophisticated type of spark plug that can hold up to these massively powerful impulses. But they have all the resources to do that. They're sitting on it. Any of these companies could easily manufacture those plugs and put that plasma ignition system on their engines, and they could instantly increase the thermal efficiency from, a, say, a 25% thermal efficiency to like 35 or even 40% thermal efficiency, and they could do it overnight with the exact same engines they're already manufacturing. Why aren't they doing it? They're sitting on those patents, so do they have intention to actually put these into use someday? You know, I know there's constantly these different laws being passed and whatever that they have to have X amount of miles per gallon, mm -hmm. you know, they're going to be getting phased out, electric cars, you know, they have to have X amount of electric cars coming into play and that kind of thing. So is it like they're just kind of milking what they have right now? Because see the plasma ignition, it can make your engine run cleaner. That means there's less maintenance, which means your engine's going to last longer and you have less need for repair, less need for oil changes as often and that kind of thing. You know, I had a friend who ran a dealership over in the Seattle area. And he said all the profits from the cars solely go to covering the overhead of the dealership. And the profits come from the garage, all the maintenance, the oil changes, the brake changes, and all that kind of stuff. So if they put a system like that in an engine and made it run cleaner, that means you have less oil changes you're getting at the dealership. That's less spark plug changes. Because anytime there's carbon, that's going to be one of the sources of a lot of the maintenance in an automobile engine. So that's going to be reducing their profit source. So, you know, is it a conspiracy or is it just good business for them? I think it's basically good business for them. And they would kind of be shooting their self in the foot by doing that. So in a way, they can't be completely at blame for not wanting some of these things to come forward because it would jeopardize their whole profit model and profits for the shareholders and that kind of thing. So what do you do? Right. You know, I mean, is it is it only going to stay at a grassroots level where people can buy my book or video, learn about the plasma ignition, put it on their own car and get the benefits? Or is it actually going to be something that auto manufacturers can actually start putting into their vehicles and not worry about it and start getting a different mindset that, hey, we're going to be the first internal combustion engine automobile manufacturer who's going to put an engine out there with the highest thermal efficiency. You only have to change the oil maybe once every two years. You never have to change a spark plug and, you know, that kind of thing. Is there any automobile manufacturer gutsy enough to take on that model, knowing that they're going to have reduced long-term sustainable renewable income in exchange for selling something that is going to give the customer benefit that no other automobile manufacturer is going to be able to offer? So I don't know. I mean, those are all legitimate things. They have legitimate reasons for not bringing a lot of these things out. So I don't know, it's kind of a catch-22, you, you know, what do you, what do you do? You know, but as far as putting these things into commercial production, you know, my plasma ignition is not a free energy system, but it is a pretty profound thing to be able to put this on an old engine, lean it way out, 
drop the temperature, make the engine last longer, get more miles per gallon, more power, reduced emissions. And so I have an associate who's working on one of the production-ready prototype circuits because you can do this plasma ignition by getting one of these off-the-shelf performance ignition modules, adding some high-voltage diodes to it, and you got the plasma ignition. But I don't want to keep sending business to those companies who don't really want to acknowledge my plasma ignition. So that's why I'm making my own. So I am moving in the direction of putting the plasma ignition into commercial production, the solar charge controller. There is one particular unit, which is going to be a 12-volt, 20-amp solar charge controller that is going to be put back into production for the first time since John and Gary Bedini died about six years ago. Those will be made available. Jeremiah right now is working on a production-ready prototype to test. You know, it's come a long way. That's going to be probably in a kit form, so people can at least buy the turbine. They can hook up their own hot water tank, cold water tank, do all the plumbing themselves, but they'll at least be able to get their hands on a turbine built right that's properly balanced and everything. So those are coming together. I know that Mike Clark, who's presented for the fourth time this year on his reactive power generator, which is essentially a Bedini SG type system that runs on a battery and it charges a battery bank with all the uh, electromagnetic recovery. Once that magnetic field turns off on a coil, it puts out a high voltage spike that can be captured in the battery. And then that, those battery banks are swapped every three minutes. Those battery banks stay completely charged up all on their own, it's self-charging, and there's a generator on it putting out a couple hundred watts net pretty much nonstop. So that is a true over unity, so-called free energy system that is over 1.0 COP, so-called coefficient of performance. And he's gonna be looking at putting out kits for people to actually build and put this together with the controller board that will do all this stuff. Hmm. So. This is the closest I've ever seen to something coming out like that. Now, is it going to be stopped or whatever? Well, essentially, all the different components and everything to make that happen are kind of in the public domain, so to speak. I mean, there's not really any secrets to what's going on and how to make that. For example, Mike Clark's motor, a lot of people know how to make the Bedini SG, so-called schoolgirl motor, scale it up, increase the battery voltage, swap the battery banks every three minutes. And that's where to start. And if people just did that with these thousands and thousands of Bedini SGs out there right now, take the iron out of the core, go up in voltage, swap the battery banks every three minutes, that's where people can start. And that's really kind of the keys to start moving into that self-charging system and then put a generator on it and see what you got. So these things work. This is the closest I've ever seen. It's the simplest I've ever seen with Jeremiah's system for mechanical. On the electromagnetic spectrum, there's the Mike Clark concept, which, you know, that presentation is in the eMediaPress.com as well. So it's like, I don't see any reason for anybody to question or wonder, well, what year is this finally going to start coming out? You know, it's been a legitimate question over the years, but I don't see that as an excuse anymore. I don't think people should wait around for something to buy off the shelf if these become readily available in kits sometime in the near future over the next few months by the end of this year. That's one thing, but all the information is there for anybody to basically do this on their own. If anybody is, you know, mechanically capable and they have access to tools, everything Jeremiah has presented, anybody could at least put together a system 
that does exactly what he's been demonstrating with this hot cold system. And, you know, there's really enough information that anybody who's competent, business savvy with the mechanical stuff, the manufacturing and the business side, they could take those concepts and start developing their own Tesla turbine systems based on this hot cold system. And they could actually compete with what the system that Jeremiah is moving forward. Are they going to know all the little subtle nuances and everything that makes Jeremiah's that much better than what they may be putting out? Probably not. Will they eventually discover those things on their own? Probably. But, you know, there's no reason that some company or some entrepreneurs out there couldn't take this and run with it. Mm -hmm. It's all right there. It's just sitting there for them right now. And those are viable systems, proven, they're practical, and they're here. <laughs> I love it. Those are all really good points. People should stop hating and start participating, as they say. And Jeremiah, as we're wrapping this thing up, we talked about this, but it was in the second hour. Not sure everybody will hear it, but just to summarize, people are wondering, this sounded quite interesting to them, I'm sure. When will people be able to buy this and what kind of price point do you think we're looking at? I mean, I know it's hard to say in advance, but if you had to guess, I mean, is it fair to say it'll be out in a year at a thousand bucks or are we talking more or less if we're just looking for some kind of metric to go by? I know that once we finish the production turbine, I need to do some testing on it and make sure everything is good to go before we actually sell it. And things seem to take a lot longer in the real world than they do when you're just thinking about it and planning it. Sure. But just a random idea off the top of my head would be it'd probably be available in three months from oh. now. Wow. It could be more. Sure. So it's safe to say within a year... There should be something on the market and people can purchase a turbine from you as long as everything goes according to plan. Absolutely. Within a year. Absolutely. Beautiful. Um, but uh, so for the price, I really have no idea because when you build a prototype, it costs a lot more money than when you than when you're doing production. For instance, the first shaft, we got a quote from a company because they have some more advanced equipment that they could make the shaft with they quoted us like $1200 but if we order 25 it would cost like $100 for the shaft so without getting all the quotes for buying multiple pieces of the turbine all at the same time um there's really no way i can say at this point how much the turbine will cost but i can say that when we start ordering more turbines, when we're ready to do the pre-orders, we will be able to get a price on it. But I don't know. What do you, what do you think, Aaron, <laughs> for the price? So what I would like to see is that it's in the several thousand dollar range because the value is there. But again, it is impossible to say until I have all the quotes, especially from my CNC machinist, mill machinist who will be doing the housings. And as soon as we get the uh, first production-ready prototype done, then we'll have the bill of materials for everything. And that's really going to be the only time that we can see what they're going to be going for. But I would recommend that everybody go to emediapress.com, sign up for the free Energy Times newsletter, because that's one of the first places it's going to be announced. 
the first run will be on a pre-order basis, just like how I did the RPXs and the MWOs, and with a known lead time. And we're not going to take a single sale until we know the absolute cost and what the lead time is going to be so that people will absolutely get what they ordered. And for people's peace of mind, the way I operate with the RPX and everything else is that all the money from the pre-orders, they go into a dedicated savings account at my credit union, and I pay for all the production out of pocket. Once the very last unit that's pre-ordered is shipped, then and only then is the customer's money touched so that all the reimbursements are made, and then everybody is paid out of that. And that keeps everything safe and secure because if there's any, no matter how small of a possibility of something going wrong and they can't be delivered, then all the money is safely there that can be returned to everybody. And that's how I like to do business. So I'm doing everything I can to support the project with, you know, Jeremiah being at the shop financially, otherwise, and with tools and resources. On Jeremiah's website was at myteslapower.com. One of the greatest ways for everybody to be able to support Jeremiah would be through his Patreon account. If you want to just mention real quick, Jeremiah, because that actually helps you pay the bills, you know, your personal rent and stuff like that to kind of keep it going because you're not really receiving a paycheck by developing a prototype. Yes, patreon.com slash iEnergy Supply. But it's linked through your My Tesla Power. If they go there, there's a Patreon link so that you can... Yeah, MyTeslaPower.com, the Patreon link is there. Some of that money does go to the project, but like Aaron said, I have to pay my bills, and it's made a world of difference. Some months do get hard, so any support was greatly appreciated. Yes, yes. And I understand that Patreon supporters will be the first to get on the list when it is available. I think that's something that might uh, jazz people up a little bit. But even if this thing is a couple thousand bucks, you know, generators are typically five, six thousand dollars. And if we're talking about lowering our electric bill to near nothing, I mean, that is paid off in just a couple of months here in Southern California. So I think it's an amazing thing. I'm happy we could cover it. Before I let you guys go, is there anything else to tell people about links or where to follow up or any information about the 2023 conference yet? So the official conference website is energysciencenference.com. So this year we actually had it at my shop since I had the space. It's a new shop here in Spokane, Washington. And we'll probably have it next July. It'll be whatever weekend follows the 4th of July. It'll be a four or five day event and it'll be jam packed with probably about maybe 17 to 20 or so presentations. We normally open up for ticket sales after December 31st, just to make accounting easier. So it's within the actual calendar year. There's a discussion forum. I have a couple forums, energyscienceforuncom The bigger one is energeticforum.com and mentioning a lot of the Tesla stuff early on, Dr. Adrian Marsh, Haka says, and Griffin Brock are very advanced and very skilled in a lot of the Eric Dollard and Tesla sciences. We created a new Tesla science research section within energeticforum.com. It's free to join. That's where a lot of stuff is going to be shared directly from them with the Telluric experiments and Real.io is the website where the MWO 
and Steph can be seen, vril.io. The main website is emediapress.com. That's where over 200 books and videos have been produced. There's a few more for the 2022 conference. You can go in there and you can search by people's names or by topic. And you can also search by the year of the conference. So if you type in 2022, anything related to this year's conference will be there. If there's a sale going on, there's usually a coupon at the bottom of the website. So you can use that in the shopping cart and it'll automatically take off whatever discount is currently available there. And I would encourage everybody definitely go to the free category because there's a handful of free products. You can see some of the downloads of the free panel discussions that happened at the conference, the free Solar Secrets book. There's a free Synchronicity Handbook, which kind of goes into the consciousness stuff, which is one of my greatest passions. And then, of course, Jeremiah's MyTeslaPower.com. Anybody who can support his website there would be greatly appreciated. And I would like to mention Eric Dollard's website, EricPDollard.com. A lot of the stuff that happens at the conference wouldn't be possible without Eric's involvement with supporting different people kind of behind the scenes with their experiments. And in the right column of ericpdollar.com, just scroll down and you can see how you can donate to EPD Laboratories, Inc. It's a 501c3 nonprofit corporation and all donations are tax deductible. And that goes to supporting Eric's work in the electrical sciences. Awesome. <laughs> Well, this really was great. Thanks for joining me today, guys. Fascinating stuff. Really impressive work, Jeremiah. Keep up the great work and take care out there. Okay, could I mention one more one more thing? Sure. I just wanted to mention about the Patreon that it's also, if you're curious about what's going on and the steps we're on, it's a really good place to get updates on the project as we go. So thought I would mention that too. Yes, and in the wrap-up, I'll say uh, a little bit more about it, and I'll make sure that everybody has the links and the show notes to all the uh, URLs that were mentioned. So uh, I know the promotion part sometimes isn't the easiest for the people who just want to get in there and are the real tinkers. So, um, yeah, happy to help, and I hope you guys get a good response. Thanks for taking the time. Hey, thank you so much, Greg. It's been an honor to be on your show. Heck yeah, guys, that is what I'm talking about. I really do love this secret science Tesla tech alternative energy space. And I'm so lucky to know Aaron because he is the guy when it comes to knowing who's doing interesting things and how to get in touch with them. Comes with the territory of hosting the biggest and most impressive annual conference in this space. And I have even more respect for him because I'm pretty sure they didn't even skip a year during COVID. I'm pretty sure they powered through, and I don't know that many people who host an annual event that had those kind of guts, you know? So Aaron really is up there on the THC Hall of Fame. He's only personally been here two, maybe three times, but he's helped set up like six interviews. And it's a relationship I value, and I hope to keep strong for <laughs> the life of the show, really. And I think it's a missed opportunity for a lot of my podcasting colleagues. We like to talk around this stuff, but I don't see a lot of them trying to get to ground zero with the actual people trying to resurrect the suppressed sciences we like to speculate about. Tartaria sure is a popular buzzword these days, and it's because people want to talk about an ether physics-free society in the ancient past. But how about we just bring the right people together now and build one in our lifetimes? 
I think of it like the food shows, too. We have a lot of people discussing the problems and the attack on ranchers and red meat and Agenda 2030. But where are the sustainable ag producers on some of these shows? Big tip of the hat to Sam Tripoli, by the way. He just had my guy Doug Lindemood on. And I get it. Hearing about the intricacies of cattle selection and rotational grazing is probably not as entertaining as another conversation about if aliens are really demons or what the pyramids were for. But if the World Economic Forum is really the enemy, if the lies promoted in the name of climate change and the policies they're enacting to kill sustainable ag are the key problem, as a conspiracy show that's supposed to be on the right side of all these issues, what kind of episode helps push back more? Look, I love a good Tricked by the Light episode as much as anyone, but I personally feel a responsibility to save room for the right shows that truly push back against the narratives being promoted, even if they can be a bit dry. So energy, much like food, is under attack, and it's really the same story. The way we've been doing it is morally bad, and therefore we can't do it like that anymore. All while ignoring that the system itself suppressed the better ways and the alternatives. Nobody likes factory farming. When I see comments on my food-themed episodes from vegans about how nasty corporate farming is, I'm like, yes, we all agree. But you're falling into the same trap of not seeing how it should be done and should have been done all along. It's not a binary situation. We either do it the worst way or we don't do it at all. And with energy, sure, we use a lot of inefficient systems and a shoddy grid because they only let us use or even see a certain type of energy. The stuff that can be metered and charged for and appears scarce. So we do the alternative ether energy shows to say, look at this, and fuck electric cars that can't even get you across the state. Fuck a grid of charge stations knowing your every move and ultimately deciding when you've gone far enough. Instead, stuff like what we talked about today could be the future. The better future, but the word must get out, and that is what I consider my role to be. I suck you in with the Saturn Moon Matrix episodes, and I hope you stick around for grass-fed beef and temperature-differential-driven Tesla turbines. <laughs> All under the guise of a goofy stoner brand that a lot of people don't take seriously. Well, joke's on you, we are the Trojan horse of conspiracy podcasting. And I'm sure it's obvious, but doing a show like this is difficult for me because I don't even know the basics on stuff like this. I have to really take a crash course in turbines in general, energy, physics, all the stuff I refused to study when it counted. Maybe a blessing in disguise, right? I'm untainted by the controlled paradigm. Looking at it with fresh eyes and all that. But it still makes it a difficult kind of episode for me. But that's my job. It's all good. I think it's important if these technologies exist, if we think Tesla was a suppressed genius, then let's do something about it or highlight the people who are trying to. So I have a ton of respect for both Aaron and Jeremiah. I'm thankful to have learned about Jeremiah's work. He seems so genuine and exactly like a Tesla type should be. The kind of personality that goes this deep in these areas... I kind of expect them to be not the most flowery or animated kind of speaker on a podcast. And I expect them to not be the best salesmen or marketers either, which to me is a good thing. I can see he's very knowledgeable and I had a good time listening to him, but 
if he was over-the-top, super charismatic, slick, charming, and a used car salesman type personality, my intuition would say fraud. But the guy who, just by the nature of conversation, seems to get more excited talking about the nitty-gritty than he does, hey, follow me on Patreon. Well, that's the guy you want. I hope that we all see his good nature, and in turn, he does get some support from the listeners. I know not every show should come with an added cost or a guilt trip about being a Plus member and doing this, that, and the other. But interviews are typically done to promote things, sometimes just ideas in a book form. And when we have a show with Robert F. Kennedy Jr., it's like, yeah, the book's already number one on Amazon. I'm just happy to be here. But when I have guests where I just think, man, this guy or these people should have way more support than they do, then I feel really good about highlighting their work. Hey, you know, we're not Rogan, but we are big enough to make an impact, and I think we do have a large number of people who are passionate about these subjects, and the people tend to respond from what the guests tell me after the fact. I mean, we sold George Wiseman out of Aquacures, and we booked Jeff Harmon up solid for a couple of months. And where bigger shows get more views, and maybe one in a thousand take it any further to thank the guest or go to their website or buy their book, for us, I think it's closer to one in a hundred. And it just speaks to the fact that if I was a listener, I would probably be interested in every show, but only certain subjects would I be motivated to take the extra step. And that's all good. That is how it should be. But I hope some people are inspired by the work being done in this alternative energy sphere and want to be a part of it, even in a small way. Again, if the World Economic Forum and the puppet masters of the Power Pyramid want to say, we can't do energy the way we've been doing it, and they plan to enact all these restrictive and controlling policies to make our lives harder and their bank accounts fatter, we can acknowledge the very problem they address, we can even have a predictable reaction, but then we sweep in, then we spread the word, we say, well, here's the actual solution, thanks for bringing it to our attention, guys. Because Agenda 30 is real, it is the UN's 17 Sustainable Development Goals. And there are cutthroat bankers and massive corporations that have divvied these 17 goals up and they are putting huge amounts of money and influence in each one that's in their area. So it's very strategic and I worry about how effective their strategies tend to be. And I think as food and energy are hit harder and harder, a lot of people will suffer. And my hope is that this utter failure of a trajectory blows up in their face so badly that all faith and authority is lost and the masses look around for what else is there and they find sustainable ag, grass-fed, high-quality, GMO-free food and they find people like Jeremiah to create the true energy revolution that we do need. And I feel like the number of people that will suffer through all this is heavily related to how quickly we can get these ideas and this sort of information to spread and catch on. High quality, local, resilient, decentralized food, holistic natural medicine, optimized, highly charged water, and truly sustainable and versatile energy systems that produce no waste, can handle pretty much any viable input, and once purchased and installed, require almost no maintenance, as far as I understand. Well, it excites me, and I definitely think, well, how is this dry? This shit is the reason there's that quote about sufficiently advanced technology appearing as magic. This is magic to me. 
Our mainstream technology might be complex, but is it advanced? Depends on your definition of advanced, I guess. But if it doesn't include efficiency in the stack, then I think you're defining it wrong. I'm all fired up. How about that? But follow these guys, reach out and say hello, give them a little boost because it is a thankless job most of the time. Check out the several years of conference presentations that are available at eMedia Press. Aaron mentioned several things that are totally free in this interview. And I've probably watched two dozen or so of those presentations over the years at this point, and I'm always impressed with the material, even when it's several levels over my head. And Jeremiah seems like he's really got something. And even if you were to jump over to his Patreon and sign up for just a month or two, just to say, hey man, I support the mission and you're doing great. It's not a huge ask, but it does make a big impact. Also, one of the reasons Aaron considered Jeremiah as one of the top contenders to bring on with him, because I did say, hey, this is a great idea, but you tell me who you want to bring. He mentioned that it's important to see some powerful figures of a younger generation stepping into this. You look at these alternative energy conferences and it's a lot of old guys and the torch must be passed and our generation needs to step up. Ranchers say the same thing actually, but if you went to engineering school, if you have knowledge in these areas, really challenge yourself to see if you can poke holes in this stuff. And if you're convinced by the paradigm, Link up with these guys and use your talents to push it forward because I do get nervous when I think about what the network of ether physics folks could look like in 10 or 20 years. So not everyone is going to be an inventor or an engineer, but if that is your forte, if you're already in that space, maybe this is how you're destined to make a difference. Either way, big thanks to both of them, and I hope this interview has an impact. If you like what I do, you should be hearing the full two-hour interviews, yada, yada, yada. Today in the second hour, we got into Jeremiah's insights into academia's closed-mindedness, Jeremiah's thoughts on Tesla's communication with other intelligences, a clearer picture on how to integrate the Tesla turbine into our homes once it's available for purchase, the best ways to incorporate suppressed science technologies into off-grid systems, Scaling up to power a neighborhood on a shared system. Responses from conventional engineers that see his work. Professor Harlick's work on subtle energy and water. Deuterium-depleted water and aging. And Aaron's thoughts on the AquaCure and a modern-day Rife machine. So we did go quite a bit beyond the Tesla turbine, but that's the nature of a longer conversation. So treat yourself and start with the 7-day free trial. But in higher side news, I think we're cruising right along. Great diverse month of shows and topics. October is shaping up to be the same. I already have four of them recorded, so I know it's going to be good. Although I do need to stop overbooking myself like I have been and recording all these ones in the chamber that are just bottlenecking up. But there's just so many interesting people doing important work, you know? Plus, it sometimes gets hard to book guests in the holidays, so it's good to be ahead. Also, we do have space left in the Magic on the Mountain event with the Gramerica guys in February at Mount Shasta. A weekend of hanging out, panel discussions, smoking, hiking, and drinking that sweet, sweet supercharged liquid Shasta gold. Go to contactatthecabin.com and click on Magic on the Mountain to get the details and join the party. And as for the THC meetup calendar... 
September 30th coming up this week. If you are in Salida, Colorado, they are going to Moonlight Pizza and Brew Pub. So consider that if you're in the area. October 1st, a field trip with the Milwaukee Metaphysical Society to the Aerospace Museum. They're going to the Evergreen Aviation Museum that was a former CIA front company that smuggled drugs into the country through the 80s. Seems like good, clean fun in the Portland metro area. So check that out on October 1st. Also October 1st, conspiracy theorizers in High Springs, Florida at the High Springs Brewing Company. And October 5th, Waldo Hireside Meetup in Kansas City, Missouri. If you're looking to find it, it is at the KC Beer Co. So lots of good stuff. And October has quite a few events already. And there actually was a comment from someone named Jay who said, whoever made the Salida, Colorado event, I totally want to go, but I have a harvest festival I'm working that same day in Center, Colorado. If anyone out there is free on October 1st, come to the Frontier Drive-In at 4 p.m. for the local and Scenaria event. And find Jay working a booth for the SLV Local Food Coalition. Also, please have another event in the area. I want to meet other THC listeners out here in the SLV. Well, Jay, you can also hop on there and do it. It is so easy. You just make an account that basically just is an email so that there is a person who's quote-unquote in charge of the event. It also keeps bots out of the system. But you just make a quick and easy account, and then you say where and when people will meet up. Try to make these events at least two weeks in advance so that I have plenty of time with the way THC shows tend to come out to mention them at least once, if not twice. And then people who are interested will show up. So consider making your own, guys. You don't have to wait for one to pop up in your area. But that's about it. I have rambled on long enough, but I do love you guys. I appreciate the support so much, and I work hard for the money, you know? Days like today, I am confident that we can have a better world and just build out the parallel society that will be there to catch the brainwashed masses as soon as they can shake it all off, however long it takes. That's it for me. I've done my part. Your move, Tesla tech deniers, secret science suppressors, and ignorant academic professors. Your fucking move. From space it was falling, its light started calling, it's making crop circles again. Just as I was looking up, it showed me all the hidden stuff, and now I'm all enlightened and zen. Waking up the masses is hard. Silver ships are coming yard by yard Now I'm not asleep, don't obey the elite Gotta beat to the head Now I start to wonder, now we're not the sheep That they bred us to be Gotta beat to the head Now we start to wonder, now we start to wonder Since the visitors set me straight I encourage you to go When you see the saucers glow One by one we'll all end up awake 
That is another show complete. Remember, as much as you enjoyed this, which is just the free first hour, I hope you'll become a Plus member to hear the full two-hour interviews. You also can engage with other Plus members in the comments and the forums, and you'll find your answer to one of the most common questions I get, which is where can I find those cover songs that you use at the end of the show? Well, they are free downloads for Plus members too. And without Plus members, I can't hire the occasional musician to bring these odd cover song ideas to fruition. Plus members are how I'm able to do what I do without ads and without the big machine being on my back. We can fit so much more into a two-hour interview, and I do my best to make it worth your time and money. The conversation only gets deeper, weirder, and more controversial in that private hour. How could it not the way things are going? But the best way to sign up is at thehiresidechats.com where new first-time subscribers always get a free seven-day trial because I'm just that confident. There's no PayPal on the website, but if you need to use PayPal, then sign up through Patreon and you get all the same episodes. Our website is a credit or debit system, but you can also scope out the other options like a few various cryptos, cash or check mailed to the P.O. Box, and I'll even barter with most people if you have your own business and produce something nice that my wife or kid or taste buds might like. But the architects of consensus reality have made it clear that these themes and topics aren't really welcome on the main stage. And so this is how we secure a little counterculture corner for ourselves, and I hope you'll join Plus because that is the only way it works. Besides, you can cancel anytime right on your profile page. 
The most common concern I hear is people just being unsure if THC Plus will work with their podcast app, and the answer is probably yes. But if not, we have several high-level app recommendations for whatever phone you use, and the website is made for mobile too. We're trained to tip a waitress for bringing us a sandwich, but that tip doesn't give you access to a second sandwich. Really, I'm not asking for any more than that, and I think I offer a better service. Come get your second serving of tasty conspiracy goodness in exchange for that small token of your appreciation. Beyond that, let it also be known that we have grown and survived as long as we have by word of mouth. I don't care so much about social media likes or follows, but tell the right people about THC. And not just listeners, but the high-level figures who are better suited to sit down with me than most other hosts. And if you can help me with any of these things, I can work to bring you better shows, which is just a win-win for both of us. Informative, entertaining, and action-packed. It also never hurts to thank a guest you liked if you have the time either. We want them to know people are listening, so they're willing to come back down the road too. Thank you for spending some time with me, and cheers to a better tomorrow.